You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have uh, Christopher Hendon, Assistant Professor uh, in Computational Materials Chemistry, uh, University of Oregon, Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry. Uh, he's also known uh, in some circles as Dr. Coffee, because he's uh, taken science and applied it to creating the perfect cup of coffee and looking at different coffees, which uh, we may get into a little bit. But uh, Chris, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Yeah, my pleasure. I'm, I'm going really well. It's a beautiful day here in Eugene. Yeah, so tell me about your uh, research work. What is it, uh, you know, besides the coffee stuff for a start? <clears throat> yeah, well, so I am, I'm actually one of three new hires at the University of Oregon. Uh, the university put forward a series of cluster hires, and one of them was in energy storage and materials chemistry. And so I'm the first of three. We've also made two other hires. And I'm a theoretical chemist, which means that I use a computer to back out uh, numbers, if you like, quantities associated with materials, whether it's their electrical transport or, uh, you know, what color they're going to be, things that are important to energy storage. And uh, so we use supercomputers, uh, and I had a small research group here of four graduate students, and we're going after a variety of energy-related problems. Oh, okay. So such as uh, what, what kind of problems are you looking at? Like uh, solar battery storage or, you know, what kind right, of things? Right. Right. So the, one of the major one of the major problems that we're facing at the moment is we're actually very good at capturing uh, light and turning it into electricity. But the issue is then storing it uh, rather than using it on the spot. And so one of the technologies that is emerging is the idea of a supercapacitor, which essentially stores electrical charge in really high surface area electrodes. But the problem is, is there's not many high surface area electrodes. Uh, that are really conductive. And so we're looking at a new class of materials that has extremely high surface areas and in principle can conduct electricity, but most of them do not. And so we're trying to elucidate the design principles that give rise to electrical conductivity in this new class of materials called metal organic frameworks. So are you um, are you good at predicting materials? Like if I showed you, you know, a chemical formula, um, could you do certain math and prediction on what that molecule would do, what its properties were, or is that still more of a an emergent thing that's very difficult to figure out? Yeah, so that's a good question, actually. Um, when it comes to organic chemistry, if you think about a small organic molecule, uh, this is pretty much the basis for the development of new drugs, drug discovery in the pharmaceutical industry. So it's actually a very difficult thing to do for a small organic molecule. Uh, at least it's bioactivity in any case. But we are very readily able to compute properties of that molecule, like, for example, its vibrational modes or its color or how stable it is. Uh, things that actually matter for uh, other other applications beyond pharmaceuticals. But if you were to show me a material that was made of other elements, for example, silicon and oxygen, much the same as you know silica, like what a window would be made of, it is actually a little bit easier then to predict its properties and its function, partially because you now are essentially have a repeating unit. So this material is not behaving as a small molecule, but rather as a bulk material. Um, but also because uh, you've somewhat limited the problem to the, you know, the function of the material as it exists when it's surrounded by, for example, air, rather than having to be chewed up by an enzyme in your body. 
So in general, my, my answer would be no, I couldn't tell you all the properties of any old scaffold that you showed me. But if you gave it to me in a, in a different context, for example, here's a composition, uh, that is indeed my job, is to try and tell you everything we could possibly learn about a material uh, without actually having to make it. Yeah, it's weird. You know, I, I thought about this a little bit. You know, if you have uh, two different atoms, they're really only different in maybe the number of electrons and protons and neutrons, but they have all these emergent properties. And same thing with molecules. You know, why, where do these emergent properties come from? And, you know, through your mathematical modeling, have you figured out formulas for color, formulas for reactivity? I mean, and does this tell you of any underlying structure? Yeah, so it's interesting. So the, the the last part of your question is if if you know we have these formulas for color and reactivity and things, does that help us go backwards and start predicting structures? Uh, and that's a really difficult thing. Well, I'll, I'll tell you about a little bit more about that in a minute. We'll go back to the first part about these formulas that we use. So actually, most of chemistry is predicated on essentially the application of quantum mechanics, but w one specific flavor has taken. Um, the, the forefront here because it's the, uh, the idea of approximating a molecule by simply solving for where the electrons are in a probability function. In other words, you're saying, I can tell you everything about a molecule if I know the density of electrons. Uh, now, why the density matters is because, of course, if you have a lot of electrons and they're all negatively charged, then they're going to repel one another, but also bind to one another in some way. And that results in uh, differences in energies between these electrons when you compare two different compounds. And so that's why two compounds that could be very similar, for example, hydrogen chloride and hydrogen bromide, both of which are very similar acids, have vastly different properties. Is because the energy of those electrons is different. Um, now, the way we actually go about solving this is we, we take an embodiment of the density functional theory approach, which was proposed by... Uh, uh, a Nobel laureate, Walter Cohn, and uh, his colleague, uh, Hohenberg. And essentially, we just solve their equations using, using some sort of cheating method to give us an approximation of where these electrons are. And once we've solved that, we pretty much know, more or less, almost everything about the system. Well, when you say every, okay, so hydrogen bromide, hydrogen chloride. Yep. What have you been able to model or predict about them? You know, their melting point, their freezing point, their reactivity, I mean, what kind of parameters are useful sure. and which ones can you figure out? Sure. So if you if you want to model the melting point of a material, then you're going to need, first of all, the material to be uh, either an amorphous blob of that stuff or a crystalline version of it. Uh, and then you're going to need to include temperature because, of course, you're going to try and melt it. Now, from a theoretical perspective, what temperature is is just kinetic energy. So you're allowing the atoms to jiggle. And then if you do that, you then will probably also need to account for the fact that you're going to break a bond, some, the bond between hydrogen and, for example, chloride. So you're going to need to have some polarization uh, and polarizability in, included, uh, all of which is well described in, um, in quantum mechanics and density functional theory. And then you're just going to simply uh, use temperature and sweep the temperature up until you have a sufficient amount of thermal energy to overcome the electronic energy that's keeping those atoms together. So that would give you the melting point. The color is, for, exa for example, uh, purely related to what are the uh, explicit energy levels of those electrons within one molecule or perhaps how those electron energies changed if it was in a bulk material. But in short, the, ver the, the summary of that is that I have electrons in their ground state uh, and they're going to be at some low energy level. And the energy required to promote one electron from the ground state to the excited state gives us the color. Uh, so that's that's the idea of subtractive light. Um, the color of that compound would appear to be all the colors that were not absor absorbed by that material. Uh, this is that's a that's a particularly simple example. Um, what's more related to what people are doing um, in my group and as well as in most research institutions is looking at additive coloring materials. In other words, light emitting diodes. So if I were to apply a sufficient amount of electricity to hop that electronic gap that I just told you about, what color would that gap correspond to? In other words, what color would the material emit? Uh, and so you'd be making LEDs, essentially. And so people really care about that because what you're really doing is then having a uh, you're tuning a quantum level. So you have essentially control over a single electron's energy, giving rise to a macroscopic observable of color, for example. 
And so in principle, going back to your original question of what can we back out from these types of calculations, uh, depending on how much you want to include in your model, you could back out everything from a melting point, which I would say is sort of a macroscopic property of a material, all the way to its, you know, some property arising from the quantized energies of electrons, which could be color or perhaps uh, their vibrational modes or, you know, rotational vibrational effects that you might see spectroscopically. And even things like uh, tunneling energies to move an electron from one position to another position without having to go over an energetic barrier. These sorts of properties are... Oh, really? Are, are tunneling energies quantized, just like, uh, you know, electron energies? Yeah, well, so, the, yeah, in, in principle, they are. In practice, it's very difficult to measure. So what we typically would say is I take two materials, both of which have a ground state uh, energies and, and quantized places where I could or positions where I could put electrons. And then if I observe experimentally that I do see electron tunneling between species A and species B, with knowledge of what the electron energies were before the tunneling, we would then be able to make a statement about the energetic barrier for that tunneling. Um, and so that would be where you'd back out the you'd back out the energies of those ground state orbitals, and then you'd essentially say, okay, the difference between those was the tunneling energy. Well, this, is tunneling dependent on uh, the context in which a molecule is is sitting? You know, if it's in a, a liquid, or if it's in a surrounded by a gas, or if it has certain conditions, pressure, temperature, et cetera, does that change the uh, the tunneling energy or the likelihood? Yeah, it does. Yes. So the the I, I'm not an expert in the in the field of quantum tunneling, but I can tell you that there is strong dependence on the energetics of the orbitals in which the electron is coming from and going to. And those are properties that are dependent on temperature, uh, the the electric field produced by their surroundings, and so forth. If, okay, so if you have a compound that's um, you know in a gaseous state, you know you can predict its melting temperature, et cetera. But um, can you predict the properties of it as a liquid versus a gas, or as a solid, or you know near absolute zero, or as a plasma? Are you able to to extrapolate it that far? Sure, actually the. The, the absolute zero is actually the easiest example for us to predict because that's the temperature in which there's no kinetic energy included. And so most density functional theory uh, and other techniques that people use to model um, the electronic structure are actually temperature independent. Now, you can include temperature, as I mentioned before, as a, it's a function that essentially adds kinetic energy, if you like. But... Uh, you know, that's a sort of a, you're usually going after a different result. You're looking at, like you said, something like the melting point or whatever. But you actually also touched on one of the major problems in, in chemistry is that we really do care about the electronic structure of things. For example, an enzyme, we want to know how it works. And it's solvated and absolutely in water. But the difficulty is, is that we need to then somehow treat the enzyme with quantum mechanics, but we don't want to treat all of the water with quantum mechanics because that would just be a tremendous computational expense. So actually modeling liquids is one of the vast challenges in, in, in all, essentially understanding chemical systems, whereas gas phase is, is quite straightforward in the sense that most of us would typically think of an ideal gas when we are modeling the gas phase, which is defined then as a gas that's not really interacting with anything else. So in other words, it's just a, you know, a molecule in a box. And so that's an easier one to describe because in, you know, we make the approximation, it's an ideal gas. And of course, that falls apart for things that are not ideal. Uh, but that one's not so difficult. And then for the solid, that's that's actually very trivial. That's much the same as uh, as modeling the gas. Uh, if a material is solid, then it has a given density. And so I can construct a box and fill that box with, you know, whatever the composition was. And nominally, I could model that as either a crystalline material with repeating order within that box, or I could make a really large box and have pseudo disorder within that box. And so that would be the equivalent of an amorphous material. So you, can't you take like an arbitrarily small, you know, cube and model liquids using like a finite element analysis, you know, yeah. if it's small enough and you could see, oh, you know, with each water molecule, it only has a certain number of molecules adjacent to it. We can model that and then extrapolate outwards. That, that's right. So you can do that. The problem is, is that uh, local electronic and ordering effects are not necessarily uh, as sort of long range as one might expect. So, you know, if we look locally at any given water molecule, it's going to hydrogen bond to things. And you'd be able to describe that pretty well. But you, 
you would artificially be forcing that system to have that order periodically if you extrapolated from a small box to a large box. Now, you may not be wrong, but it is absolutely entropically disfavored to do so because that is inferring that there is that order periodically, which is a single point on otherwise more complicated potential energy circuits. So that is one way that people do it. But, uh, you know, there's problems with that. And of the molecules you look at, are you, I'm, I'm just curious. You know, I would think that you've seen a lot of things that very few people have seen, you know, coming out of these equations and these modeling. Like, for instance, if you look at organic molecules versus inorganic, do you notice the difference? Is there any fundamental difference or it's just, you know, a molecule is a molecule. There's no extra emergent behavior when you have organic molecules versus not. Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting question. So the thing about organic molecules is that if you look at a periodic table, most organic molecules are constructed from, let's say, the first three rows of the periodic table. Uh, you know, you still, you'll, of course, find some organic molecules that have selenium or iodine in them, but it's pretty rare. So in general, because those molecules are sitting relatively high up on that periodic table, then most of them have really relatively stable electrons. So in other words, they're pretty low energy electrons. And so the main differences between modeling organic compounds and inorganic compounds is typically the organic compounds are pretty stable. You know, I mean, of course, there's examples where they're vastly unstable. You know, for example, if you have a really crazy bond angle or you've deliberately made a, a really polarized bond or something like this. But um, but in general, the, re the main difference is that when you get down into the, the the later elements in the periodic table, even as even as early as, for example, titanium. You start to get uh, interesting properties that arise from uh, titanium having electrons that can come and go from titanium relatively easily compared to that of carbon. Uh, yeah, you know, the, the key thing, however, is that the field that sort of people typically either work in organic chemistry and they're making molecules and they perhaps have some organic semiconductor angle or a medicinal angle or something like this. And then the people working in organic chemistry are typically working towards some quantum data storage, for example, storing uh, information in electron spin or trying to capture energy or store energy. And it's at the interface between the two that things become kind of complicated because essentially you're saying you've got low energy electrons on one side and that's gonna interface with the high energy electron of the, of the metal and you're hoping that they are gonna have some interesting emergent property because of that. And indeed that's an area that people have been working in for a long time uh, and that's the organometallic chemistry. And actually, that's given rise to most of the technologies that, that you think of on the industrial scale. So, for example, polymerizations uh, that make low-density polyethylene and high-density polyethylene. Things like um, large-scale production of, yeah, essentially any polymer, I'd say that was a, a really good example of that, uh, is, is okay. the chemistry that emerges from the interface. And, you know, I know this is probably a, a real simple question, but then again, it's just odd to me. Like, what what is... What is an electron bond? You know, what is the, when two atoms bond, literally what's happening? You know, I know they're sharing electrons, but what have you seen that's happening maybe on a deeper level? What, what else is going on? What sure. makes a bond? Yeah, what, what is a bond? That is, a, that is the, uh, the, you know, the timeless question in quantum chemistry. So, I mean, everyone's got a different way of defining it. But uh, from, from what I've seen, my definition of a bond would be if you have two species that contain electrons and you put them near each other and they become more energetically stable. In other words, you've essentially allowed those electrons to find a lower energy position, independent of whether they're in the same orbital, there's some quantum mechanical effect, like, for example, one is spinning up and one is spinning down and they form a covalent bond or whatever. I would call any energetic stabilization a bond of some sort. Now, that within that, there's a spectrum. And so from my side, when I run a calculation, I back out essentially what we're solving for is the exact energies of each electron. And so when we examine the electron energies of a system like, let's go back to hydrochloric acid again, HCl, you could think of modeling that as H in a box and Cl in a box, and then you put them near each other and see what happens to the electrons. And so indeed, yeah, they bond, they share with one another, they make this covalency. But what that actually looks like is a construction of instead of orbitals associated with each atom, you get orbitals associated with the molecule and they're more complicated. They're a linear combination, if you like. And so these these sort of more macroscopic orbitals, molecular orbitals, are then able to hold two electrons each. And you end up seeing sort of more delocalized and more complicated electronic structure where electrons that were formerly part of chlorine now are partially 
located on hydrogen and vice versa. And what we're solving for is essentially what do those orbitals look like and where is the highest density uh, for each one of these energy levels? And then it is that density plus that energy, not, not, not the, it is the energy and the density, not physically added together, uh, that give rise to all the chemical properties and reactivity of that given molecule. So that's what we're really solving for is looking for the energetics. And we're also looking for the, uh, the uh, locality of those electrons. Yeah. And there's only, I mean, again, you know, I only know the basics of chemistry, but it's only affecting the valence electrons. So chlorine, you know, has a bunch of electrons and right. lower energy orbitals. Um, are those affected when it bonds? Yeah. Uh, or are they left alone and just the, uh, the valence electrons are affected and make this new structure? No, that's a, I mean, that, that's not a basic, <laughs> that's not a basic comment. Indeed, that's actually a sophisticated one. So the, the core electrons, the ones that we think of as non-bonding, we treat in most of our models as non-bonding as well. We essentially dismiss them from the valence, from the bonding interactions and so forth. Uh, now, certainly there are examples where accounting for those core electrons really matters. Uh, and I'll talk about one of those in a minute. But you're right. In general, it is the valence electrons that do all the work. And the reason for that is that they're the highest energy electrons in the system. So they're most ready to uh, come and go from an atom, if you like, to, oxi to be oxidized or reduced. Uh, and then because of that, that's what gives rise to all the, the quantum chemical properties that you would observe. Now, an example of when you might need to actually include the core electrons is if you're trying to model and understand an experiment where you're exciting core electrons using some X-ray. Uh, so an example of this might be uh, X-ray photoelectron spectroscopy, where essentially you use an X-ray to excite an electron from the core to one of the valence unoccupied shells. Now, if I were to try and model that, but I didn't include the core electrons, then obviously I'd have a problem. What, what happens if you do such a thing? If you, uh, you know, shoot high energy at, uh, at a molecule, will it, I guess it won't always excite the valence electrons. It'll excite the, uh, I mean, it could excite, depending on the energy, the wavelength, it could excite any of the electrons in any of the orbitals, right? Right, exactly. So so um, uh, the technique that uh, we were just referring to, this XPS approach, actually is really useful for quantifying whether you have different oxidation states of metals. Uh, if you think the classic example, Aaron Brockovich example with the chromium uh, six versus chromium three or two, you can imagine that if you have chromium six, that is chromium that's missing six electrons. And so then if I were to shoot a, a X-ray at chromium and promote an electron from its valence, uh, sorry, from its core energy, so somewhere in the, you know, really stable electrons out to its valence, well, there's less valence electrons out there now. So you're going to need less energy to put one of these core electrons into the valence. And so actually, if I were to then compare chromium six to chromium three, you would imagine then that because chromium three has three extra electrons, you're going to need a bit more juice to get that core electron out to the valence. So that's the, that's the example um, you could think of using this technique to essentially probe uh, oxidation state. It's not super, super useful for that. There's other techniques based on similar approach where you use x-rays, but also just like the nature of the metal itself. You know, if I gave you a rock and you said, what's in this rock? Well, each element on the periodic table has different electron energies. So one could use an approach like this to probe what is in that rock. Well, what happens when you shoot uh, energy at a molecule? It, it would, it would probably, you know, it would affect a, a core electron. It would kick it up to a valence energy. It would it kick out one of the valence electrons then, or yeah. what happens to it? So it depends on if there is low energy electrons uh, or low energy unoccupied orbitals that that this core electron could go into. But for a lot of molecules, it's easier to ionize them than it is to excite them. So in other words, what I'm saying is if you shine really high energy photons of some sort on a molecule, there's a good chance you're just going to shoot an electron off of that molecule and the molecule will then be relatively positively charged. Now, it may be super, super unstable, but essentially uh, you, that is one outcome that could happen. And another outcome, of course, could be some excitation. What determines what's, whether it's going to be ionized or simply excited is the energy of the unoccupied position in which that electron would end up residing in, at least transiently. Uh, and so a lot of molecules, the, that next unoccupied orbital lies higher in energy than the so-called vacuum level, 
which is the energy required to remove an electron from the molecule entirely. So then, okay, so if you're removing a, uh, you know, ground state electron, um, one of the higher energy electrons will then fall, you know, will emit energy and fall down to, to cover that, uh, that ground right. state electron that was lost? Exactly. Okay. You'll never have a hole and it'll never stay like that. It'll always fill in the lowest energy level. Right, first. right. You can think of it, yeah, it, like everything trickles down if you want to think of it that way. Hmm, interesting. Okay. Um, any, uh, I guess in your work, this is kind of a general question, but what, what surprises have you gotten from elucidating the structure of electron clouds and, you know, and molecules bonding and interacting? What things have you seen that you thought are really surprising or unusual? So most of the surprises and the uh, peculiarities that I come across are actually in the organic chemistry field rather than in the materials field. And that's not because materials are all known and everything's solved, but it's because I'm, I'm just more fascinated by small organic molecules and how such something so small could have such a dramatic impact you know, in, in your body or in your life and so forth. And so uh, there's a few crazy examples I really like. I, for example, uh, as you, you mentioned before, I mean, also work in coffee, but more generally in flavor chemistry. And I find the idea of, of having a difficulty predicting flavor or smell of a compound is extremely curious, given we know everything about that compound. It's vibrational modes, it's, you know, it's melting points, all the possible things you can imagine, its stability and so forth. Yet we still have trouble predicting what the molecule would smell like. So, you know, that that's something that you know, my group's been working on for quite some time now is trying to understand how we could predict smells. And it turned that's really difficult. Um, and so that's that's always been a fascination. Uh, a recent topic we've been thinking about is the anti-cancer drugs based on platinum, uh, how those those particular compounds actually function and how you know certain platinum compounds have a higher affinity for one cancer rather than another one. Those minor differences based on you know small structural perturbations are very surprising to me. But perhaps that's because I'm not an expert, of course, in biology. Maybe this is obvious to a biologist, but to to a quantum chemist like myself, I find these minor perturbations very intriguing. Yeah, well, I highly doubt that uh, biologists would know, but hmm, interesting. <laughs> Um, well, uh, based on what you know about quantum chemistry, uh, you know, I recently read that scientists are starting to see a lot more quantum effects in biology. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you're aware, aware of any of this, but um, does, that, does that make sense to you based on the angle you're coming from that this uh, would be possible in a living creature? Oh, absolutely. Any quantum effects as tunneling, uh, coherence, et cetera? Sure. So, so, I mean, several Nobel Prizes have been awarded for various different uh, spectroscopic approaches to to probing quantum effects in biology. Um, those ones are, you know, have obvious utility. Imagine if you are incorporating a dye into the human body and you want to observe whether this dye has been uptaken into a particular cell, but you're looking for something very, very small, then you're gonna need to have some sort of spectroscopy. Uh, the one that was really popular was confocal spectroscopy, which allowed you to essentially take a, a, an image with a, a, some sort of fancy microscope and determine where molecules were in particular cells or other matrix matrices. Um, that that is extremely interesting. I mean, myself, I've actually worked in a, a quantum phenomenon that occurs in biology, which is this idea of transferring a single electron through a protein. Um, and the, the example was that there's a essentially a series of uh, enzymes, the monoamine oxidase enzymes. One of them does. Uh, they're responsible for chewing up serotonin and so forth. Essentially, without these things, a lot of biological functions that make you happy and, and feel things are uh, diminished. In any case, um, there was a, a wonderful study on the function of one of these enzymes where uh, I guess some uh, chemical biologists were able to substitute one of the amino acids on the periphery that had been known to oxidize in certain media and the whole enzyme ceased to function. Now, typically, a biologist would invoke that that caused a structural change and the active site was no longer intact and so forth. But uh, one way or another, it seems to be that the active site is intact. And actually, the reason for that enzyme not functioning anymore is that that's, that particular cysteine motif that contained a sulfur was no longer ionizable. And because it's not ionizable, it was unable to relay that hole, the, the omission of an electron, into the center of the active site. And therefore, this, the function of the enzyme was uh, dramatically decreased. Uh, so, you know, we, we went through and computed the, the 
essentially redox potential of that protein and demonstrated that that was probably a likely outcome or the likely cause of this was the lack of the sulfur. Uh, and, you know, there seems to be growing evidence that actually these sorts of electron relays in your body play a major role in uh, enzyme function and so forth. That's amazing, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, um, quantum, quantum effects, just sorry to interrupt you, quantum effects, just thinking about uh, the general term quantum effects is an interesting one because uh, essentially, you know, when we think of as a chemist, everything in our vision is quantized. You know, we typically think of molecules moving around in a body as a Newtonian effect because it's a, you know, it's a, an object with mass and it moves with temperature and so forth. But actually all of the properties that give rise to or that come from that molecule are all quantized. A great example of this is, you know, asphyxiation with uh, carbon monoxide is, occurs because it binds almost irreversibly to the iron site in heme. And so in that case, you would say that that is quantized because the energy of that binding is well described. Uh, and so, you know, we if you want to think of it that way, then pretty much everything in your body could be quantized. The problem is just uh, trying to put a number on something that's so macroscopic can be sometimes convoluted. Yeah, like even if, it, if everything's quantized, all the possible states of all the possible molecules and atoms and systems, I mean, you could have infinite number of things of states yet still be quantized oh absolutely hmm. all right interesting uh would you, would you mind if i ask you a little bit about uh, your coffee work sure go ahead yeah if you, if you don't mind just you know tell me and listeners what uh what what makes you so interested in coffee and what kind of uh, interesting uh, things have you found out about it well the united states uh obviously i, I work in the united states so when i think of uh, pitching an academic motivation, I usually use the American market, but certainly coffee is widely consumed worldwide. So, so take what I'm about to say and uh, you know more broadly think of this in the world context rather than the U.S. context. But the coffee industry is uh, is worth a tremendous amount of money. So in the United States, it's worth about 1.5 percent of the GDP, um, which equates to roughly 225 billion dollars a year. And that's including, you know, import, export, retail, cups, et cetera, all these things. <clears throat> so with that in mind, I would say that that is a pretty valuable industry. And certainly compared to other industries that I work in in my you know, day to day job, it is it rivals them, if not trumps most of them. Um, so with that considered, we have this extremely valuable product that we work with day to day. And in fact, everybody, pretty much everybody on Earth is aware of coffee's existence. So it's an amazingly ubiquitous material. Yet there's tremendous variability in the enjoyment of the beverage, as well as just more, more on the physical and chemistry side, what the beverage actually is and how it came to be. And so with that in mind, I, you know, I was essentially fed up with, uh, with variability in coffee. And so that's why I've taken a more academic approach is to try and figure out how we can reduce uh, the critical variables in the coffee production. But also, I initially became interested in it because... Something as simple as water chemistry it has it plays a tremendous role in the flavor and perception of coffee. And a high quality coffee could be perceived as very low quality and vice versa, uh, depending on the water chemistry. And so, you know, that was my intro to it, and that got me excited about the application of science to coffee. And then, uh, I've, you know, things have grown from there. Has anyone created uh, something you could drink that would counteract caffeine? You know, if I want to drink a coffee, I'd at midnight and then go to sleep two hours later. Has anyone figured out what I can drink to uh, to shut down the caffeine? Because it has such a long, it's, I've heard it has like a six hour half-life. I just wonder if there's a compound that counteracts it. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know if there's a compound that directly counteracts caffeine. Uh, anecdotally, I know that uh, essentially people who drink coffee late at night and then drink beer immediately after seem to find that they, that they can sleep. Um, so perhaps it's just any downer, if you like, that might, that might counteract the, uh, sort of the upper effect, if you like, of the, uh, caffeine, but, you know, so have, have you studied how caffeine is utilized in the body or have you studied more the chemistry of brewing the coffee and its impact on your sensory experience of it? So less on the sensory experience and not, and none on the biology once the coffee has been brewed. In fact, I'm far more interested in the production side. In other words, like anything from when the coffee was being grown as a plant all the way to the point in which it becomes, uh, you know, mass solvated in water. 
After that, of course, you enjoying it is a critical part of the coffee experience, but I'm not trying to homogenize flavor. In fact, I'm trying to embrace it. I just want to ensure that the barista, the person who's preparing you the coffee, or perhaps you preparing it yourself, uh, is able to do it reproducibly and obtain flavors that they are looking for um, without having the variability of things like uh, water chemistry or your grinder misbehaving or other things. How good are you at making it? I mean, do you have like coffee companies contacting you or at least friends and relatives begging you to make them coffee? Uh, yes. Uh, so I work actively with many coffee. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of making coffee, you, when you get to a super technical level, you'd be amazed at how most people would actually prefer to consume coffee. First of all, the first thing that happens is most of us don't like actually making coffee ourselves. Uh, and most of us would rather go to a cafe and embrace a bad cup of coffee at a, you know, a local cafe or perhaps a good one, whatever, um, than, than make it yourself. But if we were tasked with making coffee ourselves, most of us have found a really simple way to access a flavor profile that just, you know, is really enjoyable consistently. So, for example, in my office sitting next to me right now, I have a, a burr grinder that I believe produces sufficient, you know, grind quality. Uh, the water that I use, I live in Eugene, so we have soft water, and that's good enough for me, even though I wrote a whole book on how soft water is not ideal. Uh, but it's good enough for day-to-day, and I get given coffee from people all over the world that are far too generous, and I present these coffees to all my graduate students, and we sit around and we drink it and talk science. So, you know, most of us are not really in the once you get to the level where you know a lot about it, you actually end up taking a step back and saying, ah, whatever, it's coffee, it's fun. Um, you know, I don't know if you've ever interviewed somebody who works at like UC Davis in the wine department or whatever, but the, in viticulture yeah. and enology, they don't necessarily drink, uh, you know, $600 bottles of wine every day. And it's much the same for us. Well, can you take uh, what would normally be thought of as junk and make an amazing cup of coffee with it by using different no. methods? So, so then, uh, there's a graph that I've constructed and typically would show at this point, which essentially says that 50% of the cup quality comes from the green agricultural products quality in the first place. Then the remaining 50% is subdivided into macroscopically 20% being uh, related to the roast, 20% being related to the water chemistry, and only 10% related to the brewing apparatus. If you mess up any of those, of course, you mess the cup up. But the point is, is that if you were to just give me a piece of junk, there's only so much that I could do. I could only make it 10% better than you could. But if, if I got to present you with any coffee that I would like in the world, I, I am certain that I could get, you know, significantly better than, uh, than a piece of junk coffee. So is there much modulation by the time you're at a coffee shop? You know, um, is it true that, you know, Joe, your favorite barista really does make it better than Mary? Or is there just a really slight difference there to be had? Yeah. So that's an interesting question. So most when I ask uh, the scientific community what they think the greatest the greatest variable is in the production of coffee in a shop and why we see your reproducibility, scientists will never point towards the human because scientists are actually I think it's quite a positive outlook on life. We all think that all humans are equally capable of performing the science. And then it's probably some variable that is sort of either undercover or wasn't controlled for, but it wasn't really the human's fault. So in your example, I would say that neither of the baristas are to blame. It's that rather one is doing something that the other one is, is not, but it's not the human that's messing it up. It's just that, you know, for example, one might be using a little less coffee in the, in their uh, production of the coffee. And that's giving rise to a different flavor profile that doesn't necessarily suit you as the consumer, but maybe suits the barista who served it to you. And so there's, you know, there's a lot of variables, but most of us would typically not attribute the variability in coffee to the barista. Well, I've noticed there definitely is a big difference. You know, like, for instance, if, uh, if my wife's going to cook dinner and she's mad at me, the dinner does not come out good. So <laughs> it does seem like the, the, the person that's making the drink or the food, depending on their mood and who they are. I mean, just some people I've noticed just make amazing coffee and some people are terrible. And I don't know what they're doing differently, but right, right, they're right. pulling the shots longer or... Right. And so it's weird. Yeah. So I can actually speak to that. So I don't I can't speak to your wife making you variable dinners, but I can speak to you oh, to, uh, 
to the, uh, the, the variations that could arise, that could give rise to one barista, for example, uh, being slightly different to another barista. Um, so some variables that are more tangible are, let's, let's imagine that we're talking about espresso here because that's one that's, uh, at least one component of it is, is um, you know, powered by a machine. But in espresso, the mass of coffee that you put into the, into the filtration apparatus, the basket, as it's called in the industry, that mass is important. So let's say somebody puts 20 grams and someone puts 19, those coffees are going to be vastly different. Then the mass of water that is pushed through that puck and then giving us a resultant beverage of some arbitrary volume, that number needs to be controlled for as well. Now, some people will do that by eye. Some people will do that by, uh, you know, measuring it with a, you know, a scale of some sort. But in circumstances where people think that one barista does something better than another one, it's usually just that the barista is either being way more reproducible. In other words, they're doing the same thing every time or that they are really doing a different recipe entirely. So, for example, they put in 20 grams into the basket instead of 19 and they're pulling 40, 40 grams out instead of 50. So, you know, in that particular example, the person who's putting 20 in and getting 40 out is going to have relatively higher concentration and that's going to taste more acidic and less overextracted. And the people who are putting in 19 and pulling 50 out are going to be running more water through. So they're going to be extracting more stuff that might taste bitter, for example. So those are the sorts of variables that give rise to what humans perceive uh, consumers perceive as variability between baristas. I'm not so interested, actually, in the variability be between a barista. I'm more interested in the variability for a given barista, right? I'm trying to say, let's let a barista make a decision about a flavor, but I want them to be able to hit that exact same flavor twice. What do they have to do? Well, it seems like that's partially accounted for. You know, when I go to coffee shops, they have the big coffee machines and they just kind of push a button. So you think the shot pull time is the same and they have, you know, scales where they weigh the, the coffee and take off a little bit. So the, you know, the amount that goes into it's the same. I mean, it looks like they're trying to control a lot of those variables pretty carefully. Right. Yeah. Right. So it turns out that actually, even when you do all that, there's still other variables that are just simply not accounted for. Uh, for example, in the espresso production, when you put all those fine little particulates into that basket and pack it down, uh, water will not flow homogeneously through that puck. And it is somewhat random as to whether you're going to have regions of really high density or a homogeneously distributed uh, puck that has, you know, little pieces decorated evenly throughout the whole puck. Now, on average, sure, it's going to be random, but, but uh, for a small sample size, uh, you know, between like, let's say 10 shots, one might very well be um, essentially a bad shot. And so the question is, how do we, how do we minimize that variation? I guess you could create pucks with different geometries and, you know, flow characteristics and heights and, you know, inner uh, baffles to make sure the water get, you know, flows the right way. I'm sure people right. are working on that kind of stuff, right? Right. So a lot of work's been done on that in the, in the sort of machine side. Um, typically, you know, typically that sort of thing is uh, you see incremental advances in that, in that front. Um, and you'd be amazed, but actually things as simple as trying to isolate how a grinder produces the dust that it produces is still an empirical art. In other words, if I wanted to make a systematic modification to a grinder so that it made a different particle size distribution, uh, that is not something that you can just readily do. You know, you have to try hundreds of different burr designs to get that to work. And so these, there, you know, there's a lot of fundamental advances that still could be made. But having said all of that, you know, all of these are on the consumer side and they're the really low-hanging fruit problems that we go after. But there is much larger problems in the coffee industry. For example, how, how do I consistently grow a higher quality crop as judged by this particular score sheet? Um, you know, what gives rise to variability in that crop uh, and so forth? And that's really what that's really what we're trying to understand is, you know, we're using the brew side to, to essentially say, how can we homogenize uh, extractions for a given crop but what would be more valuable, of course, is how can we then begin to predict what the next crop is going to taste like or what we need to do to be able to obtain, uh, you know, a desired profile from that coffee. Yeah, what kind of variations happen in crops that cause different flavors? Uh, so, you know, in much the same as wine, uh, 
on dry year, dry and hot years that you'll see variability between different crops. Um, and you could also imagine that you have, you know, bugs or other insects and, and funguses and that sort of thing that could cut through your entire crop in a year. Um, there's not really, in most coffee producing countries, there's not really fertilizers available. There's not sophisticated or precision agriculture. Uh, these are typically relatively poor countries and coffee is primarily one of their major uh, exports. And for example, in Burundi, coffee is 25% of the GDP and 90% of the employment for the country. So, you know, most, most of the time it's just kind of like whatever nature is giving us is what we're going to end up with. But the question is, okay, well, if that's true, is there something that we could do as scientists that could, at, for a very low barrier to activation, to actually get this to happen? So not a huge cost investment. <clears throat> could we revolutionize the production methods somehow such that, you know, the farmer saves money or their crop becomes systematically increasing in quality or something like this? And so that's really what we're looking at. Is there, um, is there a, I don't know, the best coffee in the world, in your opinion? Or is there ones that... Uh are just so dramatically unusual or delicious that uh, you have to mention them? Yeah, so every year, uh, the best coffee in the world changes because it's determined by this uh, score sheet that we use to quantify how good a particular coffee is. Um, the score sheet is a multiplier score sheet, so in, in, in certain things are weighted very heavily, like perceived acidity, body, mouthfeel, that sort of stuff. And so, you know, each year a, a new coffee is the reigning champion. Uh, and some there's coffees that have won or it's not a competition. There's coffees that have been scored highly um, and number one, even uh, multiple times. Um, it's much easier to say which coffees score low than it is to say which coffees score high, because, of course, they, you know, the highest performing ones alter. But the lowest performing ones are ones that don't score well on the score sheet. And those are the ones that don't have really high perceived acidity uh, because that is one of the panels that we've decided is valuable in coffee. And so certain countries and producing regions typically score low. And those include Vietnam, Sumatra, Brazil and Hawaii. And there's a few others as well. But those are the main ones. Now, that's not saying that they're low quality coffee. In fact, they could be extremely high quality. It just means that they score low on the score sheet. Uh, and so with that in mind, I would say that those are the ones typically that people would associate with um, low quality specialty coffees uh, and the higher quality ones have extreme, extremely high acidity, uh, things from Ethiopia, Panama, etc. Having said that, when you think of coffee and perhaps the, the you know, your your listener group here would think of coffee, they are probably leaning towards thinking of companies like uh, Pete's or Starbucks or whatever, you know, your commercial grade coffees. Mm. Yeah. And, um, you know, Starbucks has a branch of specialty coffee, for example, called Starbucks Reserve. And Pete's is known to buy specialty coffee as well. But the definition of specialty coffee is a coffee that scores above 80 on this score sheet. Now, anything that scores below 80 on the score sheet doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it didn't score well, good on the score sheet again. But it also does mean that if it scores below 80, it falls into the commodity grade, which means that you're not going to pay very much money for it. Now, perhaps it's a circular argument, but the point is, is that if it doesn't score above 80, there's a reason for that. It doesn't really have possess a lot of those flavors that we're looking for. Or perhaps there's a, a they do, but there's also too much variability. So if I taste five copies of the exact same bag, I might taste defects in one of the cups or something like this. Um, now, those coffees are typically bought by larger companies because they cost less money. You roast them dark. You hide a lot of the imperfections. And, you know, that's what the consumer these days relates to as coffee is this sort of pretty dark roasted beverage. Uh, and you think of the you know, more commercial places that would sell that sort of thing. But in general, those are relatively low quality coffees. And uh, those companies often have a much higher quality coffee, but they're also worth a lot more money. Can you rescue a, uh, a low quality crop with good roasting and good preparation? Yeah. So if your low quality crop is 50 percent of your you know, 50% of your outcome of having an excellent cup of coffee, and you've already shaved that in half because you really have a pretty low quality crop, you're going to have to be a really good roaster. You're going to have to use perfect water by which uh, that would be the same water that the roaster used to uh, quality control. And then you're going to have to brew this in a way that really only manages to pull out excellent flavors in that coffee, which is honestly, it's possible. It's going to be tough. Okay. 
Well, very good. Well, that's, <laughs> you're covering a range of unusual subjects. Um, at this point, I just want to give listeners some references. So where can they go to learn more about the coffee side of you and then the quantum chemistry side of you? Sure. So most of the coffee stuff is pretty well publicized uh, on various websites. Um, perhaps the things that are really interesting are I curate a uh, folder of publications, peer-reviewed publications that are related to coffee research, and they, are, they can be found on my website. Um, there's hundreds in there and don't be, you know, don't be scared by them. Just have a flick through them. If one interests you, uh, have a read. And if you want to learn more about it, perhaps send me an email. I'd love to talk about it. Uh, in terms of my, um, energy storage work, uh, that has not received as much public, uh, notoriety. For example, you won't be able to read an article in the Atlantic about our computational efforts on developing new supercapacitor electrodes. But all of my peer-reviewed publications on that topic are also hosted free of charge for reading of it for anybody uh, on my website. Um, and I would also encourage you to, if you get excited about one of the particular topics that you see that we've studied, to also you know, look up on Google Scholar to see who else is working in that field, because I assure you, I'm one of many hundreds of researchers who are actively pursuing this idea of a greener energy storage solution. So... You know, this is an active field, and I, it's a fun one to work in, uh, and I will happily answer any uh, questions that any of your listeners have. That's great, Chris. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.